Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 175 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we pointed out some technologies that we wish would arrive very soon. It's time again for our annual look at the results of the two major legal tech surveys that come out at this time of year. It's a bit of a tradition at the podcast. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, you're right. In this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we'll be looking into the results of the two major legal tech surveys of the year, the ILTA Inside Legal Technology Purchasing Survey and the ABA's Legal Technology Resource Center Tech Survey. Uh, In our second segment, we're going to take a quick look at blockchain and smart contracting, and Dennis is going to try to make me understand what that actually is. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip website or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first, it's time for a topic that I know I do, I think you do really enjoy talking about every year, uh, around this time of year, both the ILTA and Inside Legal Technology Purchasing Survey and the ABA's uh, LTRC, the Legal Technology Resource Center Survey, come out uh, at around the same time, I think these are the best indicators during the year about uh, not only how lawyers are using technology, but how law firms are helping to provide that technology and what priorities they're looking at for their lawyers. Uh, But I'm guessing that not everybody listening to this podcast knows about these surveys. So I guess, Dennis, maybe it makes sense to uh, start out describing them and what they're about. Okay, so these are the the two big surveys that come out this summer. I think that uh, a little bit later in the fall, you uh, will see a, a survey from uh, American Lawyer Media that looks at uh, some of the like the AMLA 200 tech survey, which gives you information. It just comes out at a different time of year. So these two tend to come out right at the same time. So. It makes sense for us to talk about them, and it's been a tradition for us. So the ILTA Inside Legal Technology Purchasing Survey is done in connection with ILTA, the International Legal Technology Association's conference, which is held in August of of every year. And our friends uh, Joanna Forchet and and Yops Elster at Inside Legal work with ILTA to to do the survey and publish the results. And so it, it's focused on ILTA member firms. Tends to to look uh, more at larger firms is sort of the way I think about it. The information comes uh, generally from the IT departments. Um, and it focuses on where's the money going? So what are people buying? Um, and then looks at the trends. And then uh, Joanna and Yopes do a nice job every year of extending the range of the questions and trying to identify some new areas to talk about things. So that gives you sort of a bigger firm, IT focused, and, and then definitely focused on the spending side of things. So I think that gives you some really interesting information. The ABA survey, uh, tech survey, is sort of broader in range, definitely solo, more solo and small firm. Uh, you get more lawyers responding to it. Uh, gives you a cross-section 
and and gives you a sense in a in a whole variety of of areas what's going on with lawyers. Now, Tom, we usually give our caveats on on these surveys that I think that um, there's not a lot of information out there, so these are great sources. But we have to remember that it's self-reporting for one thing. It's self-selecting depending on who answers these. And sometimes you'll see in the results that, uh, especially in the ABA survey, people are answering questions in ways that shows that they don't understand the thing. So I, I think you, I think it's difficult to draw uh, conclusions that this is exact and it translates to what's going on exactly in the uh, in the legal community. But I think it's really useful for trends and to also show uh, the rise and fall of of different uh, technologies and kind of show, uh, I think, sort of the accumulation um, and the confirmation year to year between these surveys is, is really useful at giving us a picture of what's going on in technology at law firms, which is why I really enjoy looking at these surveys every year and thinking about them. You know, and I want to dive a little bit more into the demographics. When we compare the two, I like to look at actually what size firms are answering the survey. And the, the differences this year are really actually quite interesting. So if you look at the ILTA survey, firms of 1 to 100 made up 62% of the survey respondents. And then when you increase that to firms of 200 or less, they made up 80%. So that went all the way up to firms of 200. That's 80% of the people that answer the ILTA survey. In contrast, the ABA survey... It's, it's almost the exact same number. Um, lawyers from firms of one to nine lawyers made up 62% of the response. And then if you add firms up to 50 lawyers, that made 80% of the survey. So uh, there's a stark difference there. Um, we're talking about uh, starting to be really big firms answering the ULTA survey and really a small firm uh, or two all, all kind of almost getting to be ready to be medium-sized firm um, answering the ABA survey. And the, and the results are quite different as a result. I mean, I, I think you're right. More lawyers, if not almost all lawyers, answer the ABA survey. I would guess that even though it's self-reporting, I would guess that with a lot of the lawyers in the ABA survey, you might get a lot more I don't know answers than you get in the ILTA survey. Um, on the other hand, the ILTA survey, like you said, is more focused on purchasing and what's important to IT. So when they ask the question about what, for example, they asked the question about what are the compelling reasons to embrace the cloud? Um, none of the reasons that they talked about, there was zero focus on the end user. Um, you know, they didn't say collaboration or some other benefit to the user on the, on the list. It's all about cost savings and flexibility and technical expertise required by IT staff. And so uh, I think that they both have great value to show, and, and, and that's why I like them so much, is that they show the issue from two different sides of the coin. Uh, I think that if they were asking the same questions and had the same audiences, they would be much less interesting. Right. And, and I think that the other thing is that to build on that, and I, I agree with you that there is that no, notion of saying that in the ABA survey, you kind of get a sense of how lawyers are using technology. And, and it does 
give you a feeling of both the IT lens and then maybe management lens in the in the big firm sense. So I, I think the economic numbers become really the interesting piece of of the ILTA survey. In the ABA survey, you get a sense, uh, I, I think you get a better feel of how lawyers are actually using technology. Yep. And both are good. So I, I think it is sort of, you know, two sides of the coin or it sort of completes the picture. So I think the two read together are really what gets me thinking. So I don't know, Tom, with that as background, what kind of jumped out at you this year? What got you interested in the results from this year? So let's maybe start with ILTA first and talk about what jumped out at us from the ILTA survey. There were a couple things that I thought. Um, I think that um, it was striking that to see that legal technology budgets continue to go up. Uh, I think there's a clear trend. It may not be going up a lot, but I think that, that budgets tend to be going up. A lot of things stay the same. Um, for the third year in a row, most technology purchases tend to be hardware, your desktops and laptops, and, and that's really all about upgrades and, and continuing to, to upgrade software that they have. And so that's really surprising. Um, what I did find what was interesting is that there is a huge focus on security now. And, and I imagine a lot of that is due to the increasing number of data breaches on the ransomware issues that are attacking lots of firms um, and just the fact that security seems to be top of mind for everybody these days. But I, I think that there is a much heightened uh, focus on security awareness, on security monitoring services, those types of things. Um, artificial intelligence made its first show in the, uh, in the survey. Clearly a big firm um, item right now. Uh, smaller firms are not really dealing with those. And then I, I like to see, I would say that Microsoft seems to be back in play. There's a demand for Office 365. Um, it's not a huge number, and I would expect it to be a little bit bigger because I'm seeing lots and lots of companies outside of the legal industry move to Office 365. But um, still, that's encouraging. Um, a lot of lot of companies upgrading to a lot of firms upgrading to Windows 10. So I think that Microsoft is you know certainly not being hurt in, in this new environment. There are a couple other issues that I want to talk about in a minute, but those are kind of the things that stuck out to me. As, as big issues. What stuck out for you, Dennis? Well, I wanted to comment on the security, the, the increased priority in security, because I noticed that as well. And my reaction was, hey, it's about time. And I, I think uh, the security stuff for law firms is driven a lot by clients who are, are starting to put demands and there may be requirements and certainly in the financial with financial and healthcare clients to cause uh, some of that increase. But I, you know, I don't think the legal profession has really, um, you know, been a shining star in security as it is. So it's nice to see some upward movement in that. But I guess my overall reaction, and, and when you you looked at list of top five technology purchases, desktop hardware, laptops, uh, network upgrades, printers, printers, um, yawn, antivirus, and I'm going like, oh my God, this is so boring. Tom, this is so boring to me again this year. And and I, I'm sort of like, you know what really interests me? And and I sort of go through the, the stages of this, as you know, Tom, every year. I'm going like, oh my God, we have to be in the most boring profession there could be when it comes to technology. And, then, and I go, this just shows how interested I am in the edge, getting to the leading edge of technology and who's doing that I can't even tell. And then I listen to you and you kind of talk me down and then I go, okay, but 
But once I start to study this, it shows me ways that I don't, you know, people aren't necessarily going to go from where they are to the, you know, the leading edge every year. But You don't get to the leading edge without an infrastructure. Right. Well, what I come to is I say, I look at this and I see what the other people are doing. And I definitely say that if I study this and I'm in a firm and I'm looking at technology, I can get, I can see ways to get one or two steps ahead of my competition in certain areas. And if I do that every year based on this survey, then in five years, I'm going to be pretty far ahead. And so, and I can get closer to the stuff that, that interests me. And, and I would go like, wow, I'd like to be at, personally, I would like to be at these firms that are doing AI and, and other things like that. But I think you're right. There is a focus really on the infrastructure getting stability in that infrastructure, which is really important. So that reflects in the ILTA survey, the the influence of the IT department, which is all about stability, which is all about backup and, you know, managing things. But I mean, you've got to look really hard in these surveys to see where innovation is and, you know, how you get out to the edge. So this is our usual conversation time, right? I'm going like, where's the edge? And then you're going to say, there are other things just as important, Dennis. Well, I think there are things that are important. And when I look at, if we still talk about ILTA and we're going to, we need to pivot in a second to ABA, but I look at what I would consider to be the most exciting trend. So if we look at what could be innovation in the ILTA survey, certainly artificial intelligence. But the problem is, is that right now only 2% are using it and 11% of the survey respondents are even evaluating it. I'm not surprised, but I guess what surprises me more about that is that of the firms that are evaluating AI, only 50% are large firms, which means that there are small firms that are out there looking at it. So it's really not limited to these larger firms. I think that there are small firms that are innovating that are starting to do this more often. Uh, I would have expected that number to be higher for large firms. I I, thought it was interesting that cloud computing is an exciting trend that we're seeing. I mean, for someone who would like to be at the leading edge, I would expect that cloud computing would have been something a couple of years ago to be excited about. And then security and governance, I wouldn't really call an exciting trend, but I guess it's exciting that law firms are maybe paying attention to it. They always have, and one of my favorite parts of the survey is always asking what the biggest issues or biggest concerns are for IT. And, um, you know, clearly security is at the top of the list as terms of that. Um, What I was absolutely surprised at were some of the others that fell below security. Um, I was incredibly pleased and gratified to see that user adoption and lack of training is the number two concern. I don't know if this has anything to do, I'm sure it doesn't have anything to do with the the fact that many bar associations are requiring a duty of technological competence, but I'd like to believe that was what was driving this concern. Um, My day job of information government is now number four. Lawyers are finally recognizing that they have to actually manage the records that they're creating, which again, Dennis is yawning as I say this because it's boring. It's stuff that firms really should have been dealing with a long time ago and something that's really not bleeding edge, but it's something that has to be done. And I think the most interesting thing to me was that email management has fallen to fifth on the list where it's been at the top of the list for years. Suddenly it's not a big deal anymore. I would argue the opposite I argue that it's even a bigger problem. See information governance above um, for the reason for that. But those those were the things that really, I think, the, the rest of the part that stuck out to me. Um, Dennis, any comments or thoughts or issues on that? 
Yeah, you'll be interested. I just recorded a uh, a webinar earlier today where I said the words that I thought information governance was the key idea, the key notion, uh, the key thing to look at in the new world of new technologies and data, and that uh, good information governance um, and understanding of information governance gives you the keys to the kingdom, I think, in terms of data and evidence. So You'd I'm, coming be correct. Your, I'm coming around to your point of view. And so, so that was one comment. So I think information governance, I expect that is the trend that's that's going to to go up. I was sort of interested uh, in in two things I want to mention before we before we do the pivot, uh, Tom. So one was when they talked about how AI would influence legal. People talked about e-discovery. I think that's a fair point. Uh, document automation and uh, uh, contract automation. I don't know. I mean, that's been around for thirty years. I'm not. I don't really see AI having a big impact on that. Um, so I'd be kind of curious how people are doing it. Legal research, uh, potentially. Um, but there are a couple of things here that were on the list, but sort of down the list that I think are interesting. So contract analysis uh, is an area I think that AI uh, has some potential impact over time. And then something that is actually quite interesting is using AI for case outcome and predictions. And so I think that is an, a, a promising area. So those were my reactions there. And then Tom is, no, ILTA survey is complete without our annual discussion of how between the two surveys, but especially the ILTA survey, my blog always gets mentioned as a source <laughs> uh, that people learn from. So it's a small source, let's be fair. Uh, but so what I see in there that's interesting is how valuable ILTA is to the people who oh, are in ILTA. Amazingly. Oh, amazingly. Yeah. You know, and, and the numbers, just, just call that out. And then, so you see my blog there, and then in the, the ABA survey, when they talk about <laughs> where people learn from things, like one of the big sources is the ABA Journal, where I've written a tech column for you know years, and so I unfairly like to add those numbers together and look at what a large percentage of people are learning about legal technology from me. And then Tom, of course, corrects my analysis of those numbers. Well, I'm not going to correct it. All I am going to say is your column, your excellent column, aside in the ABA Journal. I don't think anybody would mistake the rest of the ABA Journal as being a um, authoritative source on technology, and, and I think that that kind of shows. The difference between the the ILTA and the ABA surveys, and it to me that what what I'm going to talk about for the next two or three minutes is going to validate you know our day jobs. It's going to validate what we do for the ABA and what we've done at Tech Show is the fact that lawyers still don't get technology. They still don't do what they're supposed to do, and and the numbers aren't increasing in the ways that I would expect them to increase. Um, so let me let me throw out some things that I thought were were interesting. Like what you said, ABA Journal. Forty eight percent of the people who responded get their technology information from the ABA Journal, which I'm going to be honest is kind of flabbergasting to me. I mean, it's it has some interesting stories in it, but it's just journalism. It's not really the kind of high quality stuff that ILTA puts out for its members. You um, take that back, Tom. It, I said your <laughs> column. I said your column aside. Dennis's column always provides good practical information. Um, I'm going to save uh, cloud computing for you because uh, I know you want to talk about that. Um, I'm amazed that in the courtroom, 45% of the lawyers who are in the courtroom don't use a laptop. 63% don't use a tablet. 
tablet. 65% of lawyers don't use anything in the courtroom for evidence presentation. 58% use zero tools for any display or output. They're not showing exhibits. They're not showing other documents. Maybe we got a lot of appellate lawyers who are just sitting there making arguments. I don't know. But even appellate lawyers like to show that stuff too. Still only 45% of the lawyers who answered the survey have dealt with e-discovery. I would think 10 years after the original rules came into effect, we would have more than 45% of the lawyers dealing with e-discovery. Only 15% are using predictive coding. And I think that's a real, there's a real statement that we can have a broader discussion about predictive coding and about e-discovery, that it's really for certain types of cases. It's really for bigger firms. It's not something that has broad appeal outside of the bigger firms. Uh, Let's see. 69% of lawyers don't have blogs. Um, Actually, it's probably a little more of individual lawyers. 69% of firms don't have blogs. I learned that so many lawyers are filing email in bad or wrong places, including 57% of the lawyers who at least sometimes send work emails to personal email. And that just drives me absolutely crazy. My particular area of interest there is always mobile. I was gratified to see that the number of people using no security when accessing public Wi-Fi is down from 29% to 19% this year, but it's still 38% of solo lawyers use no security when they access Wi-Fi. Um, I did like the difference between the use of BlackBerry among lawyers. Um, in the ABA survey, or in the ILTA survey, which I would think reflects the larger firms still purchasing Blackberries, 18% of respondents are using Blackberries, where in the ABA survey, many more solos who get their own phones, uh, it's only it's down to a mere 3%. Very sad, I think, for BlackBerry. And, and again, in the mobile world, most lawyers have never downloaded either a legal app or a business-related app to their phones, and that's in the 60 to 70% range. So again, to me, it's more the same. It's that lawyers um, are just kind of hanging steady with their relative lack of knowledge of technology. And I'm sorry for those of you who are listening. I don't, I'm not talking to you because you're listening to this podcast. I think you're part of the difference, but I'm, I'm a little negative on the, on the ABA results because it's just kind of more of the same. Yeah, and Tom, just to, for our listeners, just to make sure they understand that that last set of stats you gave were from the ABA survey. So uh, we have shifted over to ABA. Yes, that's all ABA. That's all lawyers on the ABA. And uh, except for the 18% of law firms using BlackBerry, that's from the ILTA survey. Everything else is ABA. So uh, part of what we do at the Legal Technology Resource Center is we write little summaries of each of the different sections of the overall survey. So this year I wrote on, and last year, actually the last few years, I've I've written the part on cloud computing. So I I just wanted to take a a little bit of time to highlight what I saw there. And so over the last couple of years, uh, we're seeing a steady increase in the use of cloud applications. Uh, So 37% usage. Uh, I was like to point out that even though there's a 37% number when you ask how many of the lawyers use Dropbox, which is around 60%, you start to wonder if people actually understand what cloud is. But you do see a consistent usage of the popular consumer cloud services, Dropbox, Google Apps, iCloud, and Evernote. Same set of concerns that we see, confidentiality, security, all those things, people very concerned about it. But when it comes to actually doing something about it, again, a very, very small 
percentage of lawyers actually take the standards precautionary measures that they're asked about. So there is a disconnect there. People like, in the same way in the ILTA survey, I think that you do see people like the the anytime, anywhere access, low cost of entry, and the predictability of, of cloud services. And so that's interesting. And then the other thing I'll just close with, because I, I got a sense of this in both surveys, is that you start to say, well, where's the client impact? And so I think when on the cloud side, ABA survey where I focus, you don't see much sense that the client needs are top of mind for why people might use cloud computing. Whereas I think a lot of the benefits of cloud computing for lawyers will definitely benefit clients. So I think that's a bit of a, a disconnect, but I think we're seeing continuing cloud adoption focus on the the economics of it and an interesting uptick in the level of comfort with cloud computing. So, Tom, if you read this stuff, what what should people do about it? We've said this before, but I I think that the biggest advantage that someone who reads these surveys can take from this is really an understanding of being able to understand what you're doing right now and what some other firms and what other lawyers are doing or what they know about and, and realizing that if you just do a little bit more in your practice, if you just increase your security or do more on social media or, you know, work a little bit more with, you know, tr check out new AI or innovative software, you might be able to gain a competitive advantage um, through your use of technology. And I think that so this serves as a as a way to discover where can I make some in roads or where can I learn to do better so that my practice is more technologically sound? To me, that's the biggest advantage from, from these. Dennis, what about you? So it's two things. So one is this sense of baselining. So I can say this gives me a sense of what averages are, what other firms are doing in my category, what the other lawyers are doing. And it gives me the way to make arguments to move in the directions I want with technology at my firm. And so I think that's where the trending is. That's where the sort of how, you know, the percentage spends, the average spends become useful and how things are being spent. And then I also think you can, um, the easiest thing to do with these and that I always suggest is as, as you try to figure out what your strategy with technology is for uh, and your plans for 2017 is you take these surveys, you kind of pull things out of there and, you know, see what other people are doing and three, four, five, six things uh, that interest you. And you have a pretty decent technology plan, you know, the start of one that you can discuss at your firm or with yourself as you look forward to what you're doing next year as a solo. And I think it gives you the start of that plan and you can have the discussions. And I think it gives you a big, uh, a good head start on people who are just doing business as usual or just letting their IT people, or IT consultant, tell them what to do. Yeah, and I think well, let's wrap it up by saying thank you very much again to the folks at Inside Legal, um, the staff at the Legal Technology Resource Center at the ABA. As usual, they always do a fantastic job putting these surveys together. They give us lots of food for thought, lots of things to talk about, and um, a good topic for one of our podcasts. So before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? 
ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screen process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screen process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy. And I'm Tom Mile. We often use this segment to do a quick intro to a new technology that's on the horizon and something that lawyers should start to pay attention to now and get ahead of the curve. Today, it's the blockchain and smart contracting. Um, as usual, Dennis gets to introduce these topics because I know just about as much about blockchain as most of you out there. In fact, in the, uh, in the ABA's LTRC survey, the question was, uh, what do you know about blockchain? 78% uh, say they know, they've never heard of the term before, which I actually thought was a little bit low, uh, considering that I'm just, I've tried to understand it, uh, and I still don't. So Dennis, why don't you give us a start? What is this blockchain of which you speak? So I think that, Tom, this will be like the first of, you know, a number of passes we'll make over the next few years about blockchain as it develops. And so I was going to find a great definition and read it, but I I thought maybe it's better to wing it because I think you have to look at this in a number of different ways and, and do your own research. So I kind of want to talk about it in a way where people will understand the interest in it and the possible implications for lawyers. Okay, so many many lawyers have heard of Bitcoin, which is a, a popular cryptocurrency, uh, so it's a digital currency. And lawyers have heard of that because the law firms that have been infected with ransomware are asked to pay the ransom in bitcoins to unencrypt their hard drives, you know, once the ransomware has infected them. So they become aware of, so lawyers who are know about bitcoins tend to know of it in that context. So you have this cryptocurrency called Bitcoin, and it runs on a platform. So you just think of the software that makes it happen and the systems that make it happen. That's called the blockchain. And so in a sense, the best way to describe blockchain is it's a distributed ledger system. And so by distributed, that means decentralized. It's not one central server that's doing it. There's a bunch of computers all over the world that kind of connect in a way to make this platform happen. And they create a ledger showing all the steps in a transaction so you can trace it and you can have trust and confidence that in the Bitcoin example, the Bitcoin that you get is an actual Bitcoin and you, you know, the person who gave it to you uh, has the right to give that to you. So ledger system, decentralized, and it offers a way that I think is useful to understand it is it gives you a technological way to communicate trust. Okay, so if I'm handing you a dollar bill, then I may check to see if it's counterfeit. But once it, it has, I can authenticate it, then I trust that it's the actual dollar that I can spend. And so it's that those aspects of being non-counterfeit that create trust of that that dollar bill. So in the blockchain, we're doing it in a different way, and the trust 
interestingly comes, and I don't think you have to understand this very well, by computers solving very sophisticated math problems in connection with these transactions. This is going to be the complicated part, but all you really care about is the results. And when enough of those calculations get confirmed, then that transaction gets confirmed, and we create this ledger that is can be conceived of in the form of blocks that show this is valid, this is valid, and and so on. And so you've got that confirmation and the trust of what you have is authentic. And that happens in connection with Bitcoin, but people see it happen in a number of different ways. So that's one aspect. So there is this cryptocurrency aspect of blockchain. But as people looked at blockchain, they said, this decentralized ledger system, so I can go back and publicly look at anything that happened on the ledger, even though the details of, of that transaction are encrypted, has potential benefits in a lot of areas. So for an example, I might be able to trace chain of title, authenticity of diamonds from ground to when they go into jewelry, shipping cargo containers, you know, when something has arrived and how authentic it is, artwork, uh, trademark goods, that sort of thing. So people have thought of a lot of different uses for this. Um, then they also talk about applications running on top of it, which they call smart contracting. And so for lawyers, smart contracting, there's a lot of hype on this. It'll take the place of lawyers and regular contracts. I think it can take the place of escrow type arrangements. So smart contracting would say, we proved up this transaction. We've done a transaction on the block chain, it's all validated, and then it sits in escrow until something happens, you know, the same way other escrow works. And then that outside event that triggers the release of that can get validated over the blockchain in the same way. And then money gets automatically transferred. Uh, so it could be, you know, expiration of time, an outside event that can be proved up. And that's smart contracting in its simplest form. And so people are looking at ways they can build on that. Um, so there's a lot of interest in, in this. You get people saying this could be the second internet, but the idea is that you can validate, you can authenticate, and you can track things in a public way to see what something is and the path it took to get to you is correct and proven up. And we can all go back and look at anything on that ledger and have confidence about it. So that's the full version of that. And then what I, I say, Tom, as I think about it, where it can have impact on lawyers is that if you're involved in something where there is an exchange of Bitcoin, you may need to understand how blockchain works. Um, so that could be starting to come in the future. I think you can see how the blockchain notion and a blockchain process could help in proving chain of title, could help in proving chain of custody of evidence in future years, authentication, uh, identity, other things like that. So I look at it as a system where you can have confidence and proof that what has happened happened and, and validation and it happens by way of technology. And that's why I say, I think we're gonna have to revisit this as it develops, but the interest in it is so strong right now and the potential is really great that I think that lawyers just need to be aware that it is around the corner and it potentially has impact on their clients. And I think over a longer period of time, say five to 10 years, maybe on the way that we practice law and how we prove up evidence. 
Well, and that's as good a uh, an explanation as I've heard, so I'm not going to add to it uh, with my liberal arts education any more than, uh, than I have to, except to say that Dennis pointed me to a podcast to listen to saying that uh, if you listen to this podcast, you'll be in great shape for us recording. And I have to disagree that the podcast he sent me to actually confused me even more. But I will say that the overall podcast, it's called Unchained. It's from Forbes magazine, and they have have guests on to talk about both Bitcoin and blockchain. I've listened to other podcasts in the series. And so if you're interested in learning more, I highly recommend to go and listen to a couple episodes of Unchained on Forbes. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's, a, it's another way to, to get some uh, additional knowledge about the blockchain. And this, I think, is a topic, and there are other ones like this. I mean, AI is like this, and some of the machine learning, Internet of Things, uh, other things that we've talked about. I think it's something where you want to get an overview, you want to come back to it, you want to learn some examples and say, this is something that if I, you know, each time I look at it, and I, I think you're a good example this time, it's sort of like each time you hear it described, you sort of say, okay, I understand it a little better, I understand the impact, its potential impact a little better, and I can see some examples myself of where it works. I think it's it's a topic to revisit from time to time as it develops. It's just worth knowing how much interest is in it right now, and you're going to hear it in the context of people talking about smart contracting as replacing lawyers. I think your response to that is, say, for things like escrow, and simple contracting, you can see that, but as you get more complex, to the extent that can happen, it's, a, it's definitely over the longer time frame. But Tom, it's time for our parting shots at one tip, website, or observation. You can use the second as podcast ends. Take it away. So I'm going to mention another podcast as my parting shot. Uh, we've talked about the podcast from 538, the big data people who are doing such a fantastic job analyzing the election and all that. But they have a podcast called What's the Point? And each week they they take a look at a particular issue and, and apply data to it to kind of understand it better. They took a little bit of a break uh, in a recent podcast, but it's called Your Browser's Fingerprint. And it's a really eye-opening discussion into all the ways that your browser is tracking you now and uh, the ways that the different companies work together to get information. It's really fairly eye-opening. If you thought that you understood uh, how you do a search on Google for something and then you go over onto Facebook and see an ad for what you were just searching for, if you want to kind of understand how that happens and and what causes that to occur, uh, it's a great podcast to listen to. What's the Point podcast? I want to do two quick things really quick, Tom. So where I first learned about blockchain in a way to help me really understand it is a book by, uh, I would pronounce this Paul Vigna and Michael Casey. Uh, so it's V-I-G-N-A. So I probably mispronounced that. So it's called The Age of Cryptocurrency, How Bitcoin and Blockchain Are Challenging the Global Economic Order. And there are, there are newer books in this, but this one I really liked because that gave me the understanding of the blockchain that really got me interested in, in it. And so it gives you a little history of Bitcoin in the context. It's a little older, so there have been other developments, but I think it's a nice plain language approach uh, because it's Tom's reaction to the podcast that I thought was great um, demonstrates. I think you really have to come at it 
several times, you know, to reach a level where you go like, oh, wow, that specific podcast I recommended uh, really started to make sense. And the other thing is in honor of Ilta, they, Ilta has a podcast or a number of podcasts, but uh, one recently I was listening to is on something called ISO 27001 or 27001. Um, and so this talks about uh, a certification process that mainly larger firms are using to uh, to show that they have sufficient security procedures to the extent they can be certified as ISO certified. And this podcast is really great because they talk through the procedure of how that gets done. And sort of the subtext of it is even if you decide not to do the certification, the process that they described of how you look at uh, your security and how you do things and the processes you have in place and how you test them, I think is just is extraordinarily well done and, and really useful. And I think anybody in a law firm who thinks about security would really benefit from, I think, about a 35 or 40 minute podcast that goes over this. There's two parts. So one goes into what ISO 27001 is. Um, the second part kind of goes into the certification process. And I listened to it without listening to the first one. And I think that part two as a standalone will really serve you well. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can hear show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site uh, where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet. I'm at Tom Mile and Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. So until the next podcast, I am Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.